We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you in the reading of your word and the study of your word. We ask you to guide and lead and help us to see what you'd have us to see in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 138. A Psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praise unto you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried, you answered me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for the great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is high, yet has he respect unto the lowly, but unto the proud he knows afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You shall stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the works of your own hands. All right, so this is one of those positive messages from David. It's not a, doesn't even start negative in this one. It says, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praise unto you. So he says, first off, I will give laud and praise. This, word, this particular word for praise is to give laud, to give exaltation, to, to magnify his name. And it says, with my whole heart. And, then, and remember, we've talked about this. Heart in the Hebrew literally means my, the seat of emotion. Okay? With the seat of my emotion, I will give God praise. And you think about this. The seat of my emotion from the deepest, innermost part of me, I praise God. And this is something we should be following with, with David in mind, you know, to praise God from the very depths of my soul. Our memory verse for this, for this month... A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And this is what David's saying. My heart, deep down in my heart, I'm praising you, God, because you have made me seek you. And from that praise, and he says, before the gods, Elohim, which is referring to the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, I will sing praise unto you. And this word for praise is literally to sing praise through a musical instrument or for praise. And this is why sometimes we read this and it says praise, praise, but it's not the same word in Hebrew. The one is to give him laud, to give him exaltation. This other one is I'm going to sing my praise to you, God. And that also includes not just the music, but how we sing praise. We, you know, we even have this term, we're singing the praises of somebody when we give them over and over, lifting up their, their name and, their, and what they're doing. And this is what David's saying. I'm going to sing your praise, God. I'm going to tell this before all, not just the gods, but before people. And David lifted up God's name in most cases. You know, he had his down times. <laughs> we think about when he brought the, temp, the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And he was dancing and praising before God and didn't really care who was there or what they believed, thought about him, including his wife, Michael, who criticized him. And he says, well, you know, I'm praising God. I don't know what your problem is, and you're going to be barren. And he even predicted, you're going to be barren. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. That takes it a little further than the Bible takes it. But 
Uh, so that's one way to make 100% sure. sure. Yeah. But David praised God, and he wanted to lift God up in all that he did. We, and he did for the most part. You know, he, he loved God and wanted to praise God. And, you know, is that the way we live? Wanting to worship and praise God. And too many times I see people who don't want to put God first. You know, they don't want to take what the word says. They don't want to take and put God first. They, most of the time we, we as Christians and human beings oftentimes put our emotions first and then put God on the second burner. God, I know you said rejoice in all things, but this is just so terrible I don't feel good, so I'm not going to rejoice in it. And we do that frequently. You know, God says rejoice and we grumble. God says give praise and we, we gripe. God says all things work together for good, and we just tell God, oh, you, know, you must be crazy. I don't understand how this is going to work for good. I'm, I'm in pain. And you know, David's saying, from my heart, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you. Then he says, I will worship toward your holy temple. I will praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above your name. He says, I will worship, which means bow down, pay homage, toward the holy temple. And this we talked about several times in the past, you know, especially on this during Psalms. Most Jews will pray toward and worship toward Jerusalem. Even in our, in our world, most of the temples and synagogues, or synagogues, not temples, but the synagogues are oriented in such a way that when people pray, they're praying east toward, toward Jerusalem. And why? Because Jerusalem is their holy city. That's where the temple's supposed to be. So they worship toward where God has said, I'm going to take up my residence. So that when the temple is built, they're already ready to, to be paying attention to it. And it says, I will worship toward your holy temple. And we look at this and he says, I will praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. Why do we lift up God's name and pay homage to his name and laud his name? Because he has great mercy. And that's what loving kindness is often translated as, his mercy. God does not give us what we deserve. And we should be so thankful he doesn't give us what we deserve. I know I am. If he gave me what, I'd be deserve, what I deserve, I wouldn't be here. And... You know, and I don't have any great big sins, but I still have sin in my life, and God is holy and righteous, and he says sin is to be pay punished. And his punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. If God gave us what we deserve, we'd be dead the first time we sinned, which means most of us would never get past two or three years old. Okay? And God's mercy lets us get past that age, and then, he, then, then we really wouldn't get past the teenage years for, for most people. And then you get into your older years, and there's all kinds of problems that you deal with. You know, but God's mercy is something we need to be able to praise him because of his merciful kindness. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And I said this morning, how many people didn't get saved until they were 70, 80 years old? Sometimes they've been in church all their life, and all of a sudden we'll realize, I don't know the God that this pastor's been talking about. I've been in church for my entire life from the, from the, crib, uh, from the cradle to, to, the, to, um, to whatever age they're at, and I go, I don't know this God that they're talking about. And this is the sad thing, especially in a lot of times when kids are raised up in a church. They don't know, really don't know God. 
They can tell you all the stories about God. They can tell you all the, the facts about God. They can quote the doctrines to you, but they don't know him. And there's many Christians, adults that are that way. They don't know God. They can tell you the Bible stories. They may know the Bible inside out and don't know him. There are many pastors that are out there that don't know God. Not, and you can find out real quick listening to them that they don't know him. It's just a bunch of facts they're giving you. They don't know his love. They don't express his love. And then the second half of that statement is, and your truth. Praise God because of his loving kindness, his mercy, and his truth. I am so thankful for the truth of God and the facts that he gives us all through the scripture and how he ties it all together is amazing. And each piece, you know, we share all the time, Man, man's sin did not surprise God. He already had the Messiah's plan in progress. And he told him right in, in Genesis 3.15 that the child was going to be born that would crush the serpent's head. It wasn't a surprise to God. He knew it, and he, he told him their plan. He didn't tell them every bit of the plan. But he, he foreshadowed the plan to them. We go all the way into Revelation and other places, and it says that he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God already knew the plan and had it in place. When man sinned, it was not, oh my goodness, the man sinned, what am I going to do now? When bad things happen to us, it's not, oh my goodness, how did I miss that coming their way? What am I going to do now that their whole life has been messed up because I missed that, I missed that part of their life? You know, that's not the God we have. We have a God that already knows what's going to happen. He's already got the plan in place to take care of everything that comes our way. Yeah, and that's just it. He didn't, he didn't say, oh my goodness, I, I didn't know that was going to happen. Let me, go, let me go make a plan for how I'm going to fix this. Yeah, that's not God. It's like, okay. Well, we oftentimes think that way about him. You know, God, how did you let this slide through the cracks? And what are you going to do about it now that this has happened? And God's saying, I... If you really think about it, and we do that frequently. That is our first response. If we're not really focused on God, our question is, God, how could you have let that get through the cracks? How could you have let this happen to me? And we've got to understand, his plan is different than ours. You know, and... The quote that I'm going to be putting up next next month is is on that that you know our will our our will and plan is not God's will and plan for our life, and you know what God really doesn't care about our will and plan in many ways. He wants us to be submitted to Him as Lord and Savior. The good servant of a master gets to know that master so well that the master doesn't have to say anything. And a lot of times that they there's hand signals that people don't even notice that they they use with people. And a good servant is watching their master all the time, and they see that hand signal, because the wealthy do not raise their voice in their, in their, to be served. They expect their servants to pay attention to them, to know their needs well enough, to know and anticipate what those are, and God wants us to be good servants. What is his will? Not what is my will, but what is his will? And uh, you know, we want to be keeping that in mind. And God wants us to serve him. He's not serving us. Now, he rewards us for service, but he's not saying there, well, gee, I'm just, 
going to bribe you into serving me and I expect you to serve. You know, he just expects us to serve. And too many times we kick back and say, God, I'm just going to not do this. I don't want to do it. And oftentimes that's our problem in, in our life is, God, I'm just not going to do what you're asking me to do. And we want to be very careful of that. Yeah. His mercy and his truth. Live under those truths. And then I love this statement. For you have magnified your word above your name. David praises God's name all the time. God's name, and we've talked about this several times, his name is all of his reputation, all that it stands for is God. And David's saying, you have magnified your word above your name, above your reputation. How many times do we as Christians think we have to defend God and his reputation and we try to get in the middle of things and God's saying, lift up my word. Lift up my word. When we're sharing God with people, we just want to lift up his word. What does God say? And that's, you know, and you, we'll hear it. Well, I just don't believe that. You know, I don't care whether you believe it or not. The truth is the truth. And this is what I'm going to tell you back. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to give you God's word. It says that God's word does not return void. And even when they say they don't believe it, it gets stuck in their brain. It gets stuck in their brain. I remember during the Vietnam era, these guys would be coming back and they're going, I was in prison camp and all I could do was remember the Bible. And these guys had put together most of the, most of the Bible from memory. You know, God would ref refresh it and between all of them, they were able to put together the, the majority of the Bible. And for many of them, it hadn't meant anything to them when they were hearing it. And this is why I really stress that when we memorize verses, we need to think about the verses that we're memorizing and try to think about how they matter to us. But it's more important just to put them in your brain and let God re revive them later on. And I've shared with you, it's only been in the last 10 years that I've understood the power of many of these verses that I love. I've always loved Romans 8:28. That has been a powerful verse to me. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. The verse that's really becoming powerful to me in these days is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but I live according to the faith of Christ Jesus. And it's like the power of that verse. And many of these verses I learned when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, and all of a sudden they're coming back and God is saying, you never thought about this verse, but what, <laughs> this is what it means. And I've shared with you, when I was working with the Iwana program, I was working with the... The, the teenagers, and, they, and I was driving them nuts because they were re quoting their verses, which is a big part of Awana, quote verses. And then I'd ask them the dreaded question that they got to learn really quick that I was going to ask them, what does that verse mean? They go, uh, nobody's ever asked us that. I'm going, I know, but I'm going to. <laughs> you know, I know how important it is to memorize scripture, but I also understand what, how important it is to know what you're looking at. And if we don't do that step, why is it important? What is it teaching? Then we're just reading a book. We're just memorizing a book. And that's not a place where we are supposed to be. This book is special because God says, I raise my word above my very reputation. And this is powerful information. His word is powerful. And he sets it up and says this is my spoken word that I'm going to put above my reputation because this is the defense. 
The word is what tells us what his reputation is in the first place. You know, the word is what tells us how to live. And he says, I've lifted it up higher than my name. Verse 3, in the day that I cried, you answered me and strengthened me with, the strength, with strength in my soul. And I love this. In the day that I cried, I cried out. And he, he says, you answered me. You heard me. You, you wanted to, to help. And you know, I've, I never ceases to amaze me that God wants to listen to us. As little human beings that we are, the God of the universe wants to listen to us and respond. And this whole idea of responding, hearing, hearing and responding, you know, just the fact that God hears is one thing, but it also that he responds is just amazing to me. And it says, and you strengthened me with strength in my soul. My innermost being, God strengthens us. Now, I love it that he says he strengthens our soul. It's not that he strengthens our flesh. Okay, you're in the middle of a problem. Let me make you really strong to handle this physically. He makes us internally in our emotions strong enough to go through whatever it is we're going through when we allow him. Now, we can fight it. We can argue with him. We can struggle. And God says, fine, we'll just keep giving you the test until you finally decide to give up. And God keeps giving the test. Over and over, sometimes the same exact test, sometimes similar tests. You know, depends on how you are. Me, it usually is something similar because I try not to make the same mistake twice in a row. So God gives me different mistake, a different test on it. But it's the same, same test in the, you know behind the scenes. Other people keep falling for the same exact problem, and God says, "Okay, well, when you're ready to finish, <laughs> when you're ready to grow, we'll move to the next step." And this is the amazing thing. God does not move us on until we are obedient in the last thing he told us to do. And it's been, I've heard many people say it, and I understand what they're saying. If you're not hearing God's word, go back to the last thing he told you to do and start doing that. Abraham was told to leave the Ur of Chaldees and go where God led him. He stopped in Haran for just 20 short years. 20 years in the wrong place not listening to God. And I truly believe that God didn't tell him to do anything else until he finally decided to go listen to God and go to the promised land where he was supposed to be. Because that's what I've seen other people, that's what I've seen in my own life. If I don't do what he last told me to do, he keeps waiting for me to do what I was last told to do. And I kind of understand that from a manager's point of view. If I told somebody to go do something, they go, what would you like me to do? I'd like you to do what I told you to do. I already told you what to do. Go do it. Oh, that's right. You told me to do something. Yeah. And God's that same way. We come back to him. What would you like me to do, God? Uh, I'd like you to go do what I told you to do. Uh, you know, next year, God, what would you like me to do? Same thing I told you to do a year ago. God, what would you like me to do? What I told you to do a decade ago. If you sincerely don't remember, he'll tell you. But he may also expect you, he may expect you to go back and remember because he's given us directions. And this is something we've got to be careful of is God is very good about saying, do what you were told to do. And usually we, usually we know what God told us to do. If I, if I have a gun, I don't know what it is. 
there may not be anything in that place. If you're going forward and God's giving you new things to do, then you've completed the last thing he told you to do. Otherwise, he's not going to give you something new. And if he's being very silent, then you need to go back and say, God, what is it that you last told me to do that I'm not doing? And it's fun to follow God. Yeah. It really is fun to follow God. When I walked away from God for a couple of years, I came back and I started doing what he told me to do. Because <laughs> I remembered what he told me to do. And so I went in, started doing what he told me to do, and it's been fun since. But we know most people do not just sit around doing nothing. And Moses, Moses, Abraham was one of those. He stopped for 20 years in Haran until his father died. Now, was it his father's death that finally motivated him to move on? Possibly. Because he was supposed to leave his family behind, and he didn't even obey in that when he left Ur of Chaldees. He took his father, and he took his nephew. So he wasn't obedient even in that step, but God still used him. Uh, God will still use us when we try to walk in what he tells us to do. He would rather have obedience. It's kind of fun to watch how God works, and it really is. And just this, he lifts up his word, his word, and he strengthens. Then verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. I kind of like this one. I wish this would happen sooner than later. But it says, all the kings of the earth will praise you. And this goes back to giving you laud when they hear the words of your mouth. And this is something that we've seen so many times over the years, that different people, when they hear God's word, and they finally hear God's word, things change. We just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. You know, and it's wonderful that St. Patrick was a missionary to Ireland who moved them out of all the false worship that they did, especially the Druids and all of that, and he moved them into Christianity. And he and a small band of uh, missionary pro, uh, priest went there and changed an entire nation. And we've seen this several different places over time where God has reached the ear of the government through, their, through some leader and they've been changed completely. Daniel was one of those. He changed Nebuchadnezzar with his righteousness and, and, and presentation of God to Nebuchadnezzar to the point that Nebuchadnezzar very apparently got saved. You know, very, very apparently and was told, you know, watch your, watch your pride. And then when he got proud, God put him down and made him an animal, gave him the mind of an animal. And uh, Daniel basically held his kingdom together for him because normally that would never have happened. They would have replaced him. And then God exalted him back up to his place. And then he, Nebuchadnezzar, wrote one of the chapters in Daniel. Okay. Uh, why? Because of Daniel's stance with God in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And we see this over and over. And Daniel then, then was able to influence Cyrus <laughs> later on. You know, what a man Daniel had to have been for God. But we see so many places. You know, we see a Joseph who comes along and totally changes Egypt for a period of time. During a period of time and brings uh, God into, their, into the Pharaoh's heart and changes many things going on. Verse 5, Yea, they will sing in, in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. They hear God's words, they start to worship him and sing his praise, 
and it says they sing in the ways of the Lord. They, again, this whole idea of lifting up in song the ways of the Lord, the paths of the Lord. How, what does God say to do? And for us as Christians, it is going to be something that is so critical for us. Do we walk in ways that really exalt God? Do people, when they look at us, see somebody who is different from the world? Which is you know, one of the reasons we do things like the Truth Project that's going to start next week. We want people to think in terms of this is what God says. When I make my decisions, do I do my decision the way God says it? or the way the world says it. We've got so many people that are living together in, in fornication, and the world says there's no problem with that, it's okay, and God says it's fornication. And we as Christians have to make our decision, am I going to live God's way or with what the world says? And the world will tell us things like, well, you just need to evolve and, and get rid of those old standards because everybody accepts it. Well, I don't care if everybody accepts it, I'm going to follow God. You know, and this is where we're at a crossroads right now. It started with just living together in, in, in uh, fornication and then we start getting into homosexuality and all these other one night stand things and everything that's going on but it started with something simple fornication, living together and then sin always gets, gets worse as, as it gets accepted and so we see here he says they will sing the ways of the Lord for great is the glory of the Lord. And this is something that is powerful. The glory of the Lord. And the word here is uh, kabod, and it literally means to be heavy. To be heavy with praise. God deserves to be praised to a point where we can't even fathom it. You know, make him heavy with his praise. And you know, it says that that's what's going to happen. And then verse 6, though the Lord is high, yet he has respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knows afar off. And I kind of love this. Though the Lord is high, he is exalted, he is very high. And this is kind of the idea of a king that sits up on a very tall dais. And his throne is up there above everybody. He looks down on everybody. And it is done on purpose. It's done on, that is done on purpose, saying, I'm the king, you look up to me, even when you're bowed down, you're looking up to see me, and I am above you. Um, it's kind of the reason that bosses oftentimes will have this huge, monstrous desk in front of them. I'm important enough to be on this side, all of you are on that side. Teachers have done the same thing over the years. Is high just because he is high. He deserves to be lifted up. And that's what he's saying here, you are high. God, you are high. And then, but he goes, yet, which is a comparison word, you have respect unto the lowly. And this respect literally means he considers us, he gives us attention. Yeah, and it's an amazing, and that is something that just amazes me, even as long as I've walked with God, that he pays attention to us. That is just an amazing thought. He pays attention to us. But he has this respect. He pays attention to the humble. He wants to pay attention. He wants to give consideration. He wants to look at us. You know, how many times have you ever talked to somebody and it's obvious they're not paying attention to you? They are distracted. They're busy. They're not looking at you. And it happens a lot. 
maybe we've even done it to people before, and I know that I've done it to people. Uh, But this is God really looks at us and pays attention. If we were able to see his face, we would see his face. You know, it would be, he's paying attention. But then he goes, but the proud he knows afar off. The arrogant, people who aren't going to turn to, says he knows them afar off. And this literally means afar off from a far country. Okay, they're in a totally different country from him as far as this word is saying. When we are proud, we're kind of in that way. I'm in a very distant place. God, I'm, I'm, I, you know, you're supposed to pay attention to me because I deserve it. That's the self-righteous, the self-righteous person. God, I've done all these things for you. you you're supposed to pay attention to me. And God's saying, well, I'm way over here with my, with my humble people. I don't know where you're at and why you're over there. Yeah. You know, enjoy, enjoy your time with yourself. Yeah, and this is something, you know, Blackaby said that when we want to know what God, if we want to truly experience God, we need to look around, find out what he's doing, and join him. Okay? Too many times, even as Christians, we're kind of going, God, this is what I want to do. And God goes, well, I'm over here. I'm over here. I don't know what you're getting ready to do, but that's not what I'm planning to do. And sometimes it's that we're trying to do something at the wrong time. It may be a really good thing, and God's saying, no, we need to do step one first, and then we'll get to step 20 some later down the road. And too many times, especially as humans, we want to jump to step 20. We're not ready for step 20, but we're going, God, I want to speak to a million people as, a, as an evangelist. And God says, yeah, I don't know that you can speak to 100 people yet. Uh, and this is what you know, we see with Billy Graham. You know, when Billy Graham first started, he did tent revivals and small church revivals and built up to millions of people. Many of us spoke to a person on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to talk to a million people, but I won't talk to that person on the sidewalk. Most of us are not willing to be humble enough to start at the bottom of the barrel. We want to jump straight in, and it's where a lot of our kids are these days. I don't want to start at the worker. I want to be the boss. I'm not going to start in the starter house. I want the million-dollar mansion right off the bat. Can't afford it, but I want that. Uh, I can't start with an old clunker of a car, but I want, I want the $30,000 car, $40,000 car. Yeah, well, yeah, they're very expensive. You know, I don't want to start at the bottom. I want to start at the top. And sometimes we as Christians do the same thing with God. God, I don't want to teach the, these snot-nosed kids that you know, don't know anything. I want to teach the adults. You know, uh, God, I don't want to deal with these. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want that small church. I want the, I want the big church where my name's going to be well, well known. It's not true for everybody to do it, but, but, but my point is, you know, are you willing to start, you know, too many times, and to me over the years, it's been very interesting. Everybody always wants to t- teach the adults. Very few people want to teach the kids, and yet, number one, kids are easier to teach because they're, they're, they're more pliable, but you also need to know your stuff to teach kids. With adults, you can hit all around the, around the edges and they'll hopefully pull the pieces together. Kids, you better know what you're talking about. And the really sad thing about kids is, if you teach them wrong, they're gonna believe wrong for the rest of their life unless they get another teacher who's strong to be able to correct them. It is so important. You know, teaching of the kids, I have said over and over, needs to be our best teachers need to teach kids. Use the beginning teachers to teach adults. You know, learn, learn your lessons on adults. Because adults are able to put the pieces together. They're able to study on their own. Kids are going to believe what they're told. 
And more people need to realize those kids are so important. They need a good, strong Bible teachers. They don't need the, and usually in most churches, we throw the, the new believer at the kids. Okay, you're still trying to learn, but we'll, we'll, we'll let you teach the kids. <laughs> Wrong decision altogether. Use a new believer to teach the adults. If, you're gonna, if, they're, if they've got the skills to teach, have them teach the adults and let them earn the right to teach kids. And that's something that's very important. And I've, this is when I was a Sunday school director, I, trying to get some of these good Bible teachers to be willing to teach kids was very hard. Very hard sometimes to get them to say, I want to, you know, I really, we really need you to teach the fourth graders. Well, I don't know, I don't want to that. I want to teach adults. Yeah, well, okay, we'll give you the easy ones to teach. We'll let you do the adults then. Um, but it says that God does, doesn't uh, know the proud. He knows them from afar. Verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You shall stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. And I love this. Though I walk in the midst of trouble. And this word for trouble literally is, means straits, tight places, harassment. And so many times when we get into these tight places and harassment, instead of turning to God and letting him revive us, we start grumbling and complaining and fighting and kicking against the pricks, saying, God, I just don't know why you're doing this. I don't understand this. But it says here, God will revive. And that literally means quicken, make alive. As I'm being pressed into these straits, feeling like I'm being killed, God says, I'm going to give you strength and life. We need to keep this in mind. When we're in the middle of a test, and we feel like we're being squeezed in that vice, that's the time when we focus to God and say, God, I need your help. Give me the strength. And that is what God is waiting for. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation overtaken us, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. That escape is Jesus Christ. We get something. It's not uncommon. It's something that is not going to destroy us if we turn to God. But if we don't turn to God we will be destroyed by it. Our way of escape from it is turning to God and letting him put us on his shoulders or in his hand or however you want to determine it. We turn to God and say, God, you're my strength. The stronger you are in an area, the harder the test must be to bring you there, which means the longer you've walked with God, the harder the test will be. Job is a great example. He's had a test that Nobody else that I know of has ever had to deal with in its entirety. What does that tell us about Job? He walked with God and loved God and, and had gone through many tests to get there. And God gave him a test that was going to break him if he didn't turn to God. And, it just, and you can see when you read it, read it that it was breaking him. He was being broken down. And he says, God, I'm gonna, I need you. <laughs> and I love it when he says God came to him and talked to him and he shut his mouth. Before that, God, I want you to come here. I'm ready to answer you. I'm ready to answer you. And God shows up. He goes, oh, I can't say a word to you. Yeah. Most of us need that experience, maybe. God, I'm ready to I'm just, just come down here, God. So, and I've heard people go, when I meet God, I'm going to just tell him off. I go, well, I don't think you're going to say a word to God when you finally stand in front of him and you really get the full measure of his holiness and righteousness and his omniscience. When you really start understanding that, you're not going to want to 
You're not going to even stand up there and say, God, I'm just waiting. You know, you're going to answer my questions. If you're going to care at that point. I've said that to people. I go, God will be ready for your question. If you really have to have that question answered and you think it's so important, then you actually have a question. When you stand before God, he'll answer it. You're probably not going to care at all, but he's going to answer. You know, he's ready to answer. And he's probably answered it here, and we didn't understand it when he did. Everything we need to know really is in there. We just don't. Everything is in the scriptures that we need to know. And the biggest thing is we need to humble ourselves to be obedient to what he says. And I've been there myself. You know, God, I just don't understand, and I don't get in the word deep enough to understand, or I fight what I read. And I'm getting better over the years to just say, God, I'm going to accept what you say. And I've quoted Dr. McGee many times, you know, that he said, where the, where the Bible and McGee disagree, the Bible's right. Okay? And we've got to have that attitude, God, when I disagree with your word, you know, word, the, your word is right. Old, old statement, but I changed it a little bit. The, the word of God is always right. You know, state, rule number two, if you think the word of God is wrong, refer back to rule one, number one. <laughs> Okay, like and it's been said in other ways, you know, ways, but it is really a true statement. If there's anything we don't think is right in God's word, we need to refer back to the rule that his word is true. And it's not the word's problem when I don't believe the word, it is my problem. And I need to come to the place where I agree that God is right all the time and quit fighting his word. Many of us will sit here and fight his word, sometimes for years and decades, to fight what he's trying to teach us because we're just not ready to say God's word is true. And we need to keep that in mind. In verse 7, you shall stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand shall save me. God is waiting to save us. He will be our defender. And that's what I say so often. God is my defense. He's your defense. He wants to protect his children. And it says, he will stretch forth his hand against the wrath of our enemies. When our enemies are angry, he will stretch forth his hand and deal with them. Now, maybe not in the time that we want him to. Maybe not in the way that we want him to. But he will be our defender. And lovely statement, his right hand, his hand of approval will save us. He desires to protect. He desires to save us. And, you know, I've watched him over the years defend his children. When they're attacked, I've watched him defend. I've watched him defend me over the years when I've just said, God, I'm going to let you deal with them. But you know the greatest thing about letting God be your defender is you don't waste a lot of time thinking about what they're what they're doing and what they're carrying what they're what they're trying to do because you go God it's in your hands. The freedom of not caring about your these people that want to attack you. The freedom of not worrying about what do you say, how do you say it, you know, how am I going to defend myself? Knowing that God is your defender gives you a lot of freedom. People attack you, okay God, they're yours. I actually pray more often, God, don't hurt them too bad. <laughs> okay, because I've watched him destroy people for their, yeah. for their attacking of different people. And I don't want to see them, but I also understand that maybe that's what he has to do to get their attention. And, you know, it just scares me sometimes to, to watch what God will do. At one point, my son, one of my sons was getting so 
troublesome that I said, okay, I don't know what to do for you, so I'm putting you in God's hands. I'm going to let God take care of you from this point on. Years later, he told me that, that he remembered those words and they scared him to death to be put into God's hands rather than mine. And this is something that we need to be careful of. I mean, sometimes when we get to the end of our rope, it's like, okay, I don't know what to do. I'm putting you in God's hands. And that can be scary when you look at what God does to people. Well, God will put us into situations to discipline us. He'll, he'll allow, give Satan a little more freedom to, to bring us where he wants to be, yes. I mean, but that's how he does it. And that's why I said, by putting people into God's hands, who knows what he's going to do, what trouble he's going to allow, what, what hedges he'll take away from you, as Satan can now have free reign, well, not free reign, otherwise you'd be dead, but have greater reign in your life. Because this is what he does. He says, I am going to let you go through whatever it takes. If you want to go against his people, his children, he'll say, okay, let's, let's let you go through a little bit of pain in your, in your life. What happened to Adam and Edom when they rejected God's people? He says, okay, go around them for now. But he brought judgment upon them later on. We see so much of what God does and oftentimes that judgment. Just think about the promised land. Those people had been preached to by Abraham and had been given the gospel message. 430 years later, God brings their judgment upon them and says, fine, you didn't listen to, the, you didn't listen to what I told you. You've been getting worse and worse. Here's your judgment. And they died or should have died. Most of them died, not all of them that were supposed to die. Uh, you know, I, I think of David's, this, you know, talking to Goliath. Goliath said, am I a dog that you come at me with stones and sticks? And David says, you're an uncircumcised Philistine that's been blaspheming the name of my God. He is going to give you into my hand. Why did he say that? That person attacked Israel, attacked God, God's people. And God says, okay, he's going to die. You know, we see it over and over in the scriptures that people who attacked God's children oftentimes paid with the ultimate price of death. I have seen it in my lifetime where people have attacked various pastors that I've known that didn't deserve being attacked and watched their lives fall apart. You know, sometimes their own families died before they died. And it was sad that, to see these kind of things. But God, when you're in... in opposition to God and, he, and you're in his hands, that's a scary place to be. You know, uh, great famous message of sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, and it's the idea that you fall into God's hands, what is he going to do with you? When, you? when you have disobeyed him, what is he going to do? And if you're not going to be repentant, you're going to be in hell. You've rejected Jesus Christ, you're going to be in hell. And you go against God's people and there's all kinds of problems going on. And I don't just mean the Israelites when I say this to God's people. I mean any of his children. When people attack his children, God moves. He reaches out his hand to save us, and he stretches out his hand to punish them. And his punishment will be measured out depending on where they're at. If, if he knows that they're not going to receive him, he's going to make life really miserable. Otherwise, he's going to make it just miserable enough for them to turn to him. But God will move out. What did he do to Pharaoh and his people? He destroyed Egypt to release his people, Israel, from the land. And we talk about destruction. and we, Their entire economic system was destroyed. 
with the destructions of their fields, the blood of the Nile would have killed the fish, all these things that were going on, their animals got diseased and, and died. He destroyed their economic system, battling against their gods. Then when they finally let him go, they chased him, and then he destroyed their army that went into the Red Sea after the Israelites, and he killed the army. Pharaoh was left with nothing. He had no money for his people, no, no soldiers, yeah, and was very weak and ended up with one of the dynasty changes of Egypt. Yeah. We look at what God can do, what God can do, when he stretches forth his hand against our enemies. And you know, as I say many times, I pray, God, don't, don't hammer them too hard, just, just enough, just whatever it takes. But I know that sometimes that hammering takes lives, maybe even theirs, but also affects their families and everybody else. Pharaoh's disobedience hurt his people as a nation. And as a, and as a father attacks and goes against God, it will hurt his children and possibly his wife. All these things happen when leaders go against God, it hurts everybody under them. And we don't really fully understand authority and, and all of that to its greatest degree until we start really understanding the scriptures and how when leaders went against God, their, their people suffered. When family members go against God, their family members suffered. You don't believe that? Look at Achan. He stole the stuff out of Jericho and he hid it. And he and his family died. Okay? We look at somebody like the Korite rebellion when Korah and his people went against him and God took and destroyed his whole family for their disobedience. When a leader disobeys, there are problems. Saul disobeyed God and the kingdom was going to be taken away from him and they went through trouble during the times that he was, until God finally killed him in a battle. But there was great problems all the way through his lifetime with battles and the people suffered because of his disobedience. It's an amazing thing as we watch what happens as countries disobey. Our own country is becoming a great example of that. We started as a Christian country with Christian morals and the further we get away from them, those morals, more bad things are happening in this country. You know, we, we kill off millions of children each year through abortion, murdering children to an idol of pleasure. And just, God, I can't afford this person, so I'm just going to offer it to my the idol of pleasure. And, you know, and I got there usually because I'm worshiping at the idol of, of uh, sexual fertility gods and having, having my fun time for pleasure. So I have one God that I'm worshiping, and, I, and then I get rid of my problem by, by worshiping another God. And, and this is something that's happening in our world, and we're seeing more and more death and destruction in this world. We're seeing people who have no respect of life because outside of God there is no respect of life. And then we're seeing these mass murders and everything because we're getting so far away from God. And all of these things are interrelated to the disobedience that we have in our nation toward God. And there's consequences for disobedience. And usually those consequences fall on people that we would say are innocents. Innocent people oftentimes get hurt by the sins, consequences that we commit. You know, in the last verse, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not 
the work of your hands. The Lord will perfect me. He will complete me. He will make me complete. He will finish me. And we've talked about this many times. When we become a Christian, God says from the courts of heaven that we're perfect. He says, you are justified. He spends our entire life sanctifying us, making us who he says we are. But the good news is, the moment we die, the work is finished. If we are his child, we are in his side, we become who he said we were at the beginning of it. And he says, welcome. You are now perfect. I'm looking forward to the day that I am perfect. But you know what? I enjoy this time on earth while he's perfecting me. Even though it goes through some hard times sometimes, it is fun just to watch God work and say, oh, man, I used to do these things. Now I don't even want to do these things. I used to do this, and now I don't want to do this thing. I used to do this, and now I don't do it. Watching where God takes us. I don't usually look too far in the other future because I, every time I look that way, there's all kinds of garbage in my life that God wants to, wants to take out. I, I, I'm going, okay, God, what's the next thing we're taking out? <laughs> but you know, the, the more we become like him, the more we see how far we are from him because he shines the light just a little bit deeper into our heart and we go, oh, that's ugly in there, God. Let's go, let's, let's go look back the other direction. Let's look at where you brought me from. And I hope that we do a lot more of that, looking at where we're going, because there's always darkness in our heart that God's going to take out and always will be. We're not going to perfect our life in our lifetime. When we die, God says, okay, I'm going to take that complete heart out of you, and we're going to make you who I said you are. And it says here, he will perfect that which concerns me, because his mercy endures forever. God's loving kindness, his mercy extends forever. Even when it's not needed, when we're, when we're glorified and perfect, it's his mercy that brought us there, and it's his grace that brought us there. And he says, forsake not the works of your own hands. In other words, God, don't give up on your creation. Don't give up on your creation. You created us. You know, Jeremiah says that God formed us in the, our mother's womb. He knew us before we were even there. And it says, and David's saying, forsake not your own works. So those things that you created. Now, Jeremiah is after David, but you know, forsake not what you have created. God is not going to forsake us. He is going to protect us. He's going to help teach us. If we want to be disobedient, he will let bad things happen to us. If we want to be obedient, he allows great things to happen to us. And, you know, God, God is kind of interesting. He's kind of like the car dealerships. If you've ever had to deal with a car dealership, you know, you give a couple hundred dollars and they usually give a whole lot more. You know, and God says, just give me a little bit and I'm going to give you a lot back. You know, God says, surrender this, and I'm going to give you great blessings. And he just pours blessings on us for just a little bit of movement in his direction. Why? Because he has infinite reward for us. He can afford to just dump reward on us when we make small movements toward him. And he's waiting to do that. He's waiting to give us blessings. And, I, and it's sad to me that so many people have a picture of God with some kind of eyedropper up there. Okay, how little of this eyedropper can I give you to keep you satisfied? You know, I want to change our picture. God is up there with a great big bucket <laughs> saying, I want to just bless you here. Get, get drenched with my blessing. 
And too many people in this world have this picture of God saying, how little can I give you to make you happy? You know, how little, you know, okay, I gave you, th- oh, gave you three drops. I'm going to only give you two drops. Oh, you had way too much. I can't give you. you know, that's the people's opinion of God in most cases. That he's up there somehow saying, oh, I gave you too much. Now you're going to have to pay back this, this extra blessing that I have. You owe me. You owe me. I gave you three drops instead of two. Oh, you, you really owe me. When you've, when you've earned the next one, I'll give you another, you know, when you earn, pay back that one drop, I'll give you another couple eye drops. We've got to be so careful about our attitude toward God. He wants to bless us. He is a good provider for us if we just look at him and say, yes, God, I want it. And with our attitudes so often of God wants to give me so little, or God is up there just waiting for me to make a mistake so he can crush me. Yeah, that's the other extreme people go to. Well, God, if I stick my head up and look around, you're going you're gonna to pound me. And I call it playing God, you know, people looking at God playing whack-a-mole or whack-a-person. You know, we stick our head up and he smacks us. That's not God. He's saying, oh, you came out. Cool, great. Let's pull you the rest of the way out and show you my blessings. Yeah, maybe that's more what they're afraid of. I don't know. Maybe they're afraid that he's going to really pull them out and, and bless them. I don't know what it is that people look at. But, you know, I know God wants to bless us. He's up there just saying, you're my creation. You're my children. I want to bless you. And he wants to pour out his blessings, but he's not going to pour it out on people that are not going to serve him and, and honor him. And I've also seen too many people that have gotten blessed by God and walked away from him because of the blessings. And that's something that has to be very carefully looked at. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to share with you. Lord, help us to look to you for blessings. Help us to follow you. And Lord, help us to learn to praise you and sing your praises to other people. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.